House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. House of Mystery on KFNX, Phoenix, 1100 AM, Independent Talk Radio. I'm your host today, Al Warren. Uh, joining us is uh, uh, kind of a household name that we all know, uh, and uh, she's uh, been a uh, prosecutor and a defense attorney, I believe, and uh, written several books. She's got a new book out uh, in her series called Moral Defense, which just came out in November here. Uh, welcome to the show, uh, Marsha Clark. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's actually an honor. Um, thank you for being here. Um, I, I have to ask, now, um, being in the... Um, legal world and being a, a prosecutor and, and being on, a, of course, a, a big case that everybody knows, how did you get into writing um, into the more fiction area of, uh, and, and also from a crim criminal defense attorney, which is the main character in your book? Right. That, my new theory is based on uh, Samantha Brinkman, who is a criminal defense lawyer with a kind of a traumatic past and a very unusual view of the justice system. Um, well, I started as a defense attorney in criminal law. That's, that was my roots. And then I, ch I shifted over to the prosecution side. And now I'm handling um, criminal appeals for the indigent, court-appointed appeals. So uh, that's where Samantha Brinkman kind of came from. I thought I had written a whole series on a prosecutor named Rachel Knight, four books in that series. And then I thought, you know, I'd like to stretch out and accommodate my roots and get into a more twisty character because life from the defense point of view is interesting and it gives me an opportunity to comment on our justice system and also to comment on the mentality that makes us frustrated with the way justice is sometimes administered, the way things can go wrong in a courtroom. Um, and it's really fun to talk about that from the point of view of a character who's a rule breaker and really doesn't care what's legal. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Well, and that, that, that brings me to a point. Like, um, and as a lawyer who's worked on both sides of the criminal bench, uh, like yourself, you're aware of the different roles. Um, how, do you, how, how do you describe the actual difference? Uh, like with your new character, Samantha Brinkman, in the books, um, as compared to being a prosecutor? So the prosecutor's job is to make sure that a defendant is convicted but when only when the evidence proves when there is you know the evidence beyond a reasonable doubt to prove that he's guilty and it's up to the prosecutor to make sure that the trial is fair do the best to make sure that you're doing it in a fair way um, not by any underhanded means not by hiding information or you know um, twisting witness testimony or misrepresenting things to the jury it's your job to make sure it's all done square and, and clean and, you know, above board. The defense attorney has no duty to do anything but represent the interests of his client. Now, of course, the defense is not supposed to, you know, play dirty tricks and lie to the jury. They're not supposed to. But there's kind of a slidey gray area there where they're simply presenting another point of view on the evidence and fairly, you know, very fairly poking holes in the prosecution's case to show the jury where there's reasonable doubt, where things were not done right, where things should have been done better, and perhaps where evidence of um, that's, that's helpful to the defense 
um, was overlooked. So that's their job, is to hold the, basically hold the prosecution's feet to the fire, which is a good thing. Um, you do want those checks and balances. No side is perfect. A prosecutor, no matter how zealously um, careful of a defendant's rights and the rules of court can be, sometimes they miss something. You want somebody to find, to, to catch those, those moments. So, but the mindset of the defense attorney is basically, I'm here to protect my client. And I don't have to worry about the people's rights to a fair trial, the people of the state of California. I'm just here to take care of my client, which is and to poke holes in the case and to show where there's reasonable doubt. So it's an entirely different mindset uh, because the defense doesn't have to prove anything. And so I think people don't see how that side can work. Now, in my books, that side works in a very unusual way, shall I say, yeah. and I'm not going to give away any more than that, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, but I think it's kind of fun for people to see a more accurate mindset in terms of what the defense is always aiming to do. Yeah. So I think, in, in essence, you're saying that the defense has a, a lot more creative freedom with their narrative when they're uh, talking to the jury. Well put, yes. Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Very well put. And, okay. and so as a writer, of course, it gives you a lot more leeway to do slidey, fun things. Um, and, and, then, and that'd be more fun for the reader. Yeah. Hopefully. Oh, yeah. No, uh, I think they're uh, they're great, great books, and uh, um, I appreciate you writing them. Actually, they're great. Um, where did where did um, where did you get the idea to go from this side of, of criminal? Like uh, you, you know, the, your last series, your previous series, you were from uh, your main character was more it was a prosecutor. So, uh, what made you do the switch? Well, because I was a defense lawyer, and now I'm doing defense work again. And so I really have been uh, on the defense side as long as I've been on the prosecution side. Right. And I thought, I'd like to stretch that side, you know, <laughs> yeah. use, use my right arm instead of my left arm or the other way around, but, yeah. <laughs> you know, just kind of stretch out there. And I also wanted to write a somewhat more complex and more troubled character as the lead. Um, I was just kind of ready to do something a little bit more twisty, if you will. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, Samantha. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, where, where did, where, when did crime start for you? When did crime fiction or... Just, just in your, in, yeah, it's just your interest in, in your life. Uh, when did it start for you? Um, was it when you were young or, um, when did you get into it? When I was really young, maybe too young. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I, mean, I, I really, I mean, this has been a lifelong fascination for me. Like, you know, I mean, when I was four years old, I was, you know, walking through the neighborhood and looking at things, you know, spots on the sidewalk and thinking it's blood. And, you know, <laughs> and it probably really wasn't, you know what I mean? Yeah. I was a weird kid. <laughs> I was always thinking in those terms and making up crime stories and you know, murder mysteries in my head and, reading Nancy Drew and then probably books that I shouldn't be reading. As young as I was, like when I was eight, I read Compulsion, which is the story of Leopold and Loeb, very famous, um, what they called a thrill-killing murder of a 14-year-old boy um, by two very wealthy guys who from wealthy families in Chicago suburbs who just wanted to create the perfect crime. And, you know, at eight years old, there's not a lot that I understood about that story, but... Um, 
I later reread it because it's been reissued. Um, Compulsion has been reissued, and it's fantastic. It's a fantastically written book. Yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah. My, my interest in this is, is deep and long. <laughs> yeah. So it's something you've always been part of. Um, I have to say, so in in if you had to describe Samantha Brinkman, your character, um, how would you describe her? Okay, so Samantha Brinkman is is definitely a survivor. She was raised by uh, a mother who did not want her, who found out that she was pregnant too late to do anything about it, and she would have. Um, her mother, a beautiful woman from very poor means, wanted nothing more than a very rich boyfriend or husband. And when she found out that the man who got her pregnant was not rich, uh, back when she was in college, she... Uh, left him immediately and so Samantha was raised by a narcissistic mother who dragged her from one boyfriend to the next in search of the ultimate sugar daddy and ultimately found that sugar daddy in a truly horrible person who um, almost destroyed Sam and then luckily um, well only because Sam really threatened her mother threatened to call the police um, her mother finally left him and she uh, eventually landed a nice man who happened to be a billionaire. Actually, the accident for her mother, Celeste, was that he happened to be a nice guy because she was marrying his money. He saw that Sam was going rapidly down a, a very fast spiral <clears throat> with drugs and all the rest of it, as abused children will, and uh, helped her out, out of it, and she decided to become a lawyer and in her own way deliver justice. So she identifies with the underdog, but she also very much recognizes that there are some who really deserve what they get, and then some. And so she <laughs> she finds a way to make justice prevail in her own way. Yeah, I, I'd say that. Um, <laughs> are there people in your life that you've drawn to create this character? Almost certainly. You know, I didn't used to think so. I used to think, oh, they're all fictional. I make it all up. But, but, you know, with a little hindsight and time that has passed since I started writing fiction, I realized they all come in one way or another. Of course, I change them. I pull them out and twist them up a little bit. But everything that I'm writing about is in some way um, something I'm drawing on from my, my own experiences as a person, as a lawyer, as a prosecutor, as a defense attorney. Um, I'm drawing on all of that. So there's a, a lot of real-life experience in these books, more than I ever realized. And I'm sorry to say it because I wish I, was, I could claim to be that inventive. <laughs> but, you know. <laughs> well, well you're, 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 I know now. <laughs> it sounds like you're taking the character and you're sort of putting them in different situations, though. So For that, sure. So that's and there's creative. a lot of wish fulfillment, too, you know. I mean, yeah. <laughs> to, yeah. <laughs> so uh, do you miss being um, a prosecutor? No. I, you know, there was a time when I did, when I first left the office. It was very weird after 14 years of being a prosecutor. I thought I was going to do it for the rest of my life, and I planned to. That was, that was the whole idea. And so it took a few years for me to adjust to the idea that probably it's time to find a new, you know, a new life. But, um, but especially now that I'm able to write crime fiction, and also practice law in a way that you know lets me juggle both. And now I'm um, also co-writing a pilot for NBC based on Samantha Brinkman for a one-hour drama. Um, it kind of feels like I'm 
I've segued into another part of my life, and, and I'm enjoying it. Oh, that's great. That, no, that sounds interesting. Um, uh, how do you feel about the justice system, being involved in it so long and, and now even writing about it? Um, do you feel like it's in, in the right direction? Do you feel like it's a, a good system? You know, I guess like any of us, I feel like it has its strengths and its weaknesses, you know, and feelings about it are so ambivalent. You know, I, I just don't know a better one. Let me put it that way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think it's on, I think in general we try to do the right thing. In general we try to protect the rights of both victims and defendants. Um, in specific, not so much. There are times, obviously, when the wrong thing happens, when uh, innocent people get convicted who shouldn't be, and we've seen the stories about that. Certainly, we've seen the stories of guilty people who don't get convicted. <laughs> so, <laughs> we don't know what I could be talking about here. No, no, anyway, no. but, you know, these things happen in a system that is run by humans. You yeah. know, we're flawed, and we make mistakes, and, um, and so it's bound to happen that mistakes will be made. So, you know, I, I, I do have my feelings about it, and I, I do think that there probably are ways to, to improve it, but I haven't seen a system that works better. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about the televising of cases? <sighs> Again, this is a mixed bag for me. I yeah. initially felt that I never wanted cameras in the courtroom because it has an obvious skewing impact on, on how cases are tried. Lawyers pander to the camera and get to make nonsense motions or just really sensationalist, uh, engage in sensationalist rhetoric that is had no place in a courtroom. Um, judges can pander to the limelight as well, as we saw. And in general, and witnesses come forward who maybe have nothing to say but want the limelight. Other witnesses stay away because they don't want the limelight. So there's there's what to worry about in terms of having cameras in the courtroom. On the other hand, I think it's really important that the public know what's going on, um, and 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 have, and I think that can have a normalizing uh, or a balancing effect because juries can go nuts. You know, it can happen. And juries don't necessarily do the right thing. And I'm really not just talking about Simpson. I'm talking about in general. Weird things can happen in a courtroom, especially when a judge doesn't control the proceedings the way he should. So it's important that the public know about this, that they see. Um, so I guess what I would do if it were, if I were king, what I would probably do is kick the cameras out of the courtroom when the jury is there. If the jury can't see it, then neither should the public see it, um, unless they want to come and sit in the courtroom, and they're welcome to do that. I don't think there's such as much a problem with print reporters reporting everything as there is with the camera, which reaches millions and millions, whereas people are less inclined to just read about it. And I think print reporters can be um, more accurate in terms of putting things into context. Now, not necessarily, as we know. You know, print reporters can screw it up, too, mm -hmm. and go for sensationalist headlines and really um, skew the facts to, to a point that they're unrecognizable. But in general, there's less danger with a print reporter sitting in the courtroom than there is with a camera. Um, so what you want, ideally, is to have proceedings recorded in a manner that informs the public but does not taint the jury. Mm. It's tough. I, I just know from a personal experience of just, just even being uh, on radio that when you first start doing things that are public, 
um, and you start to get feedback and listen to it, you change the way you act. And, uh, and yeah. so I would just think it would be incredible. Yeah. I couldn't imagine people filming me and uh, then people talking about, you know, what I'm wearing or my hair or my... I would just, uh, it would, it, like it would freak me out. I would actually change my behavior. You know, I'd come to work with a hat on. <laughs> <laughs> you know... Now, why didn't I think of that? Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah. You know? I, 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 that would have been my answer. Right there. I yeah. thought it would change so much. Yeah, baseball but, yeah. cap. <laughs> so, you know, you really do have to... <laughs> you, you have to... Um, you have to really make a conscious effort to disregard all of that and, and resist the temptation to um, to bend with public opinion when it comes to that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, you're trying a case to a jury... You're not trying a case to the guy across the street or the, the girl sitting in the park. You know, you have to appeal to the jury you have. You know, somebody on the outside can say, I want you to be more fiery here, or I want you to be stronger there, or whatever. No, but I have to appeal to this jury, not you, to them. And the way they perceive what's coming on, what's going on in court, is all that matters to me. And just kind of narrow focus in that way. So, mm. you know, just... sometimes it's appropriate... To, to you know to bang the podium and, and scream and yell and other times that's going to turn your jury off so much they'll never listen to another word you say so yeah. you have to be in touch with who your jury is and resist the temptation to pander to you know people on the outside who are not the ones that matter yeah well, it's just I, you know uh, in in Arizona we had the Jody Arias and that was a pretty big case and mm. televised and and you look at the um, uh, Nermi um, Kirk Nermi and the defense and I and I chatted with him and had interviews with him and and uh, you know he was he was threatened his life and um, the things that he mm. had to go through um, because it was so televised so public that's I just sort of think that how I don't know that I could do my job properly. Yeah, it's scary, and I think that's so wildly inappropriate. Uh, you know, the defense attorneys have to do have a job to do. It's an important job. We need them. We need that balance. You don't just want prosecutors up there with no answer to them, and you know, there's no question that that would be a uh, lead to terrible abuses. Yeah. Not because necessarily, you know, 99.9% of the prosecutors are going to do their best to be fair and impartial, but they can miss stuff. Like I said before, you know, you need somebody sitting on the other side from the outside um, poking holes in the things they don't see. And if you don't have that person, you really don't have a system of justice. You have, you know, it's way out of whack. So it's unfair and a terrible thing. I hate to hear that when defense attorneys are, are threatened that way. I understand you don't like what they're doing. You maybe have an opinion about how they're doing it. That's cool. Everybody's entitled to one. At least one. We all have them. But, yeah. <laughs> but to get, you know, that kind of stuff, the threats, that's just not okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that's what I thought. I thought that what a terrible stress to, to be put under. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and with all the, um, the drama with, like, Making a Murder and all those with Steve Avery, do you, um, there seems to be a, a real negative about um, prosecutors in that sense. And uh, do, well, you, do you think that's realistic? I mean, because when you see that show, um, people tend to get the idea that prosecutors will, will, you know, do what they have to to conviction. They're not really, they're not really concerned about if he did it or not. Right. You know, I, that's so not been my experience at all. You know, I, and 
so I can only speak from my experience. And prosecutors I knew, um, nobody was out to get them no matter what, you know. We'll give them a fair trial and then we'll hang them, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, not, not the mentality I ever saw. Does that mean it doesn't exist? Of course not. There are thousands and thousands of prosecutors in this country, and there's bound to be a few bad apples because right. that's the way it is in every profession. There's always a few. But um, making of a murder, that prosecutor did not come across that well. And the kind of ghoulish news conferences he was giving in the very beginning before he even picked a jury, it's one thing to say, these are the charges, we have the evidence, and, and that sort of thing. But the the gruesome detail, graphic detail, and in large part, I think we find, um, in some respects anyway, not necessarily accurate detail, he's already spinning the jury, and that's, that's not appropriate, that kind of thing where you're really uh, vilifying the defendant with yet unproven things, evidence, is, is never okay to do, and I think that kind of, in hindsight, of course, I think not at the time, um, made us all kind of recoil and say that's just too far, he shouldn't be doing that. Um, but I don't think people, I hope not anyway, I hope people don't think that that's emblematic of most prosecutors. And in some respects, those documentaries, those documentaries can be such a good thing because, again, they, they show people what's going on and what happened. But they can be a bad thing, too, if they're edited in a way that makes them inaccurate. That if they're leaving out important, you know, uh, incriminating evidence, then you don't get an accurate picture of what the case was all about and what they had against the defendants. So, you know, I, I, I'm just hoping that these documentarians have some scruples about what they're doing so that people are not misled. Yeah. Now, now both, both um, main characters in all of your books, both Rachel Knight and now Samantha Brinkman, um, strong females, do you think... It's, um, how do I say, how is it being in the legal system as a female? Is it equal? Is it, uh, what's your opinion on that? Mm -hmm. So it depends on what court you're in. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the judge is the director of the show, so to speak. Um, You know, on on a film set, the director yells cut, that's the judge. And if the judge is sexist, if the judge views the female uh, lawyer in the courtroom on either side as a second-class citizen, uh, you, yep, you're going to feel it. You're going to feel it every day. You're going to feel it in the rulings. You're going to feel it in the way he behaves towards you, the way he talks to you in front of the jury. So in some courts, that happened. It happened, of course, in Simpson, all over the place. I've never seen um, such condescending, demeaning behavior towards me from a judge in my entire career as a defense attorney or as a prosecutor. Um, it, uh, and, and that tells you something because the other judges, um, even judges who had been around at a time when there were no women in the courtroom, were much more fair, much less condescending and demeaning than Jan- Judge Ito was. So it depends on the courtroom. Every, yeah. And every trial then becomes an experiment of one for us. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be. It's, it, uh, yeah, it's a whole new challenge every time you walk into a new courtroom and a new setting. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, you never know. <laughs> you never know. Yeah. Oh, oh, who are your biggest influences? In life? Yeah. I like, mean, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I mean, as specifically, oh yeah. Oh my God. No, as in, like, what's who is there? 
uh, uh, writers or um, uh, filmmakers or just uh, people that have um, had a large influence in your life um, that maybe um, influence your writing itself? The influence on my writing in particular, you know, I, I, I really, wow, it's hard. There's so many for so many different reasons. So, okay, I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to, I know that we're going to hang up, and I'm going to say, and I forgot to say yeah. this, and that, you know, I'm going to, you know, this will blow up. So I'm going to blow it. And so, in you know, knowing that I'm about to blow it, here's my answer. Yeah. <laughs> um, certainly James Elroy, certainly Jim Thompson. Um, certainly Raymond Chandler I think um, Nancy Drew that's an early one yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, Patricia Highsmith she wrote the Mr. Ripley series amazing writer um, yeah I, I mean really a lot of noir a lot of noir influence me as well as um, lighter fare too and I'm trying to think now um, Ania Shreve was an influence I loved her stuff um, Oh my goodness! Yeah, no, I know, no, I I throw that out there. It's tough, you know. Uh, and and now I'm No, it's not not that. I uh, just uh, NPR background, so I'm very um, I, yeah, I'm dry. So uh, the uh, now the Sim- <laughs> Simpson cases was of course huge. Uh, are there other cases that really influenced you that you had to watch that were? you know, or follow that was riveting, like, you know, um, Charles Manson or anything that sort of, uh, you know, you you were really intent on uh, seeing how it was done? Charles Manson, that's a great example. Yeah. I forgot about that. Um, I was pretty young when that was happening. Um, But, yeah, I remember being fascinated by why, you know? I mean, I think that to me, in that case, that's one of those cases that, the why of it is so mystifying. How could you, why would you target this young woman? I mean, you know, it, senseless doesn't begin to describe it. And and then that your followers, who are, you know, young women in part, that they could be drawn into something like this, this horrific thing, that, that just... It, it completely befuddled me. I just was mystified by it. I remember being, and I had to read Helter Helter Skelter to get a, a grip on it, and still felt like I, it was inexplicable and, and horrifying. The, the kind of an example of a Jonestown mentality that you know, people can be, you get the right person at the right time, and you can convince them of almost anything, and, and that's terrifying. Mm. Yeah. And, and I think kind of, one of the cornerstones of the Manson case. What else? There was, I remember also, um, not long after that, being fascinated by um, uh, Patricia Hearst. Oh, Along yeah. the same line. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, kind of interesting, again, the why of it, you know? Yeah, and that's crazy. You know, I just did an interview with uh, Bradley Shriver. Uh, he's got... Um, uh, evidence now that uh, Patty Hearst was visiting um, the leader of the 
PLO in jail a uh, year before the kidnapping. Ooh, interesting. Isn't that, that it, like the, the whole question of was she hypnotized, you know, or Stockholm Syndrome, and then you come right. down and, and, you know, the just the whole scenario, and now to come back and go, well, she knew him before. That is. What is, <laughs> you know, what does that mean? Uh, like, doesn't that throw the whole right? thing? I, I find that really interesting. It does. You know? Oh, yeah. that definitely, definitely I, makes a difference. I have to tell you, at the time of that trial, um, at the time of that trial, I was not yet practicing law, but it was shortly there, not too long thereafter, that I joined, I, I became a lawyer and was working at a defense law firm, criminal defense. And, and it, was a, it was largely the view of the criminal defense community that F. Lee Bailey screwed that case up, mm. that it was an eminently defensible case that she should have gotten, you know, should have gotten maybe not necessarily acquitted, but um, lesser charges, and that he blew it. Mm-hmm. And and because there was there was so much evidence of, at the time, of Stockholm Syndrome, of her being um, uh, pressured and threatened and, you know, all of the things that happen to someone who is kept prisoner for a period of time. So... But at that time, no one knew <laughs> right. that she had already been in contact with one of them. <laughs> yeah, and that's just crazy. Are you saying that she was she was actually visiting somebody from the NFLN? Yeah, she was uh, visiting, uh, going in and visiting. Uh, he was in jail for some uh, petty crimes, and uh, mm-hmm. she was she was. They have her signed in, going and visiting her, um, and this is a year before any of that happened. But you know, at the time, they didn't know this. And I guess they didn't. Wow. They yeah, didn't. No. I know. I know it's crazy. And 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 uh, yeah. I t- talk about Manson. A really good series. Have you seen that Aquarius yet? No. Oh, watch it. Was it. Up on, on, uh, is it good? Oh, it's incredible. Uh, they they do it so well. They cover um, Manson from a personality of you know. You get to see his relationship with his mother. You get to see what was going on, and you start to see him and 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 what he was doing and how he maneuvered people. How he. Uh, could manipulate someone that seemed intelligent into following him and getting him, getting them wow. involved. I, I, they, I think they did it really well. I was pretty, pretty thrilled. Um, uh, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, but that sort of history fascinates me. Um, uh, now, one, yeah. one other, <laughs> one other question here. So, what, what does Marsha Clark do when she's not writing and she's not um, in in court? Well, we don't have to go to court very much in, on appeal. It's all in writing. Yeah. And really, all I'm doing is writing right now. <laughs> but I don't have time. Because <laughs> I'm writing the third book in the Samantha series. Yeah. I'm working on the NBC pilot. And I'm also still handling a caseload. So, what free time? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there you have it. I, sleeping. I just, yeah, sleeping. I know. It can never get enough, eh? I just, I don't know. Right. Man, so much going on. Well, it's certainly a pleasure to talk to you. Um, and uh, oh, Pleasure to talk to you as well. Yeah, it's wonderful. And, and again, our guest has been Marsha Clark, uh, the one and only, and her new book, um, Moral Defense. Um, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. My pleasure. Thank you. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com.
show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.